0: This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, reaching the pinnacle of the Defense Department's data convergence and the digital future of the DOD. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. John Harper's managing editor for Defense Scoop. Mark Pomerlow is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me. John, I start with you. What exactly is a kamikaze drone and what's the potential threat and what's the advantage that the department is trying to think about? Welcome.
1: Thanks, Francis. Well, kamikaze drones uh, are also known as as, uh, loitering munitions, Uh, are essentially one-way drones uh, in that they fly around until they find uh, a suitable target and then uh, destroy them by crashing into it. And they're often armed with uh, warheads to give them an extra punch. Um, And that presents uh, some unique uh, air defense challenges uh, for US military forces or uh, other military forces that are trying to defend against these things. And it's certainly a growing threat That the Pentagon is worried about you're seeing uh, Russia use them in Ukraine, uh, for example, they've been used uh, in other places uh, around the world uh, in recent years. Um, and, uh, that's something the Pentagon, uh, is worried about now.
0: you you note that the Biden administration's new missile defense review discusses these pretty openly. Is it fair to assume that this is technology that the United States either has or is developing too, or is it only fair to think about it as something that they're worried about from potential adversaries?
1: Oh, the U S absolutely has these types of systems, uh, in its arsenal. Uh, in fact, they've been sending some to uh, Ukraine uh, to help aid their forces, including the uh, Phoenix Ghost system, a uh, newly developed system that's uh, very uh, secretive. And uh, it, the Pentagon has, you know, acknowledged its existence and that they're sending them to Ukraine, but they won't really uh, talk about the capabilities very much.
0: You uh, note in your uh, story that's up on DefenseScoop.com, as I mentioned, uh, the new MDR mentions these. Previous MDRs haven't. Do we know why that is? What is the message that we think the department is sending as a result of this?
1: Well, it's very notable that these were included in the Missile Defense Review. And, you know, that document, which is put out every few years, especially when a new administration comes into office, you know, highlights uh, the greatest threats uh, that, you know, the U.S. is facing um, from sort of, you know, an air defense um, and missile defense perspective. You know, historically, it's often focused on, you know, ballistic missiles, uh, cruise missiles. A few years ago, it started uh, including uh, mentions of hypersonic weapons. Uh, So it's very notable now that drones, um, including loitering munitions, Uh, are included in this most recent document, which was released a few days ago. And I think it really signifies the extent to which this uh, has become an elevated threat in the eyes of U.S. military planners. Um, And uh, I think that largely stems from what we're seeing with its use on the battlefield and concern that uh, existing uh, air defense technologies may not be Uh, best suited for tackling some of these challenges. And in fact, the U.S. military uh, is working on more technology to to counter kamikaze drones uh, as we speak.
0: You write, a senior defense official who briefed reporters in the MDR in condition of anonymity said emerging lower tier threats like unmanned aircraft systems pose, quote, an expanding and accelerating risk To the homeland u.s forces abroad and america's allies and partners and then you write in a section of the mdi mdr titled future technologies the document highlights the need for advanced networks of sensors weapons and command and control capabilities this speaks to the acceleration of technology all throughout the national defense structure of the united states and its allies and partners what's the intersection that you saw if any uh between uh the mdr and the recently released uh, version of the national defense strategy, John.
1: Uh, well, you know, this whole idea of uh, you know networking capabilities, um, it, you know, is a key theme, uh, not just in these recent documents, but something U.S. defense officials have been talking about lately. You know, their vision for uh, JADC2, for example, better networking sensors and weapons, and I think this vision for missile defense um you know falls under that broader vision of needing to improve uh networked uh systems uh, not just from a defensive perspective but uh also the you know us is looking at that from an offensive perspective as well.
0: John your colleague Mark Palmerlow is on the Jad 2 beat this week several stories about that Mark that I want to ask you about. And the first Under the headline, DOD creates new JADC2 integration office, puts CDAO in charge of data integration. You write this... The new acquisition, integration, and interoperability office will look to integrate the various efforts being worked across the services and agencies under the guise of JADC2, which aims to more seamlessly connect battlefield sensors, shooters, and networks for enhanced decision making. This seems to get at the essence of the apprehension that a lot of uh, weapons experts have had over the course of the time that the departments have been pursuing JADC2, and that is with the uh, Army going off going after Project conversion. And the Navy going after Project Overmatch, and the Air Force going after the Advanced Battle Management System. It seemed for a while like never the twain shall meet. Now it seems the twain shall meet. Am I reading this right, Mark? Welcome. Uh,
2: thanks, Francis. Well, despite that that pushback and, and some articles recently quoting uh, an Air Force official at the services weren't really working together, uh, every service official that since that time back in about the September timeframe has been very firm that the services have always been on the same page and have always been working together. Um, and while that may be true, um, there's still, you know, as far as I can tell, needs to be a, a forcing function centrally within uh, either OSD or the Joint Staff that's making sure that everyone is kind of reading off of the same sheet of music and is working towards the same aim point. Um, we, we've heard uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks uh, allude to the notion that there needs to be more integration from a, a central joint uh, uh, perspective. Um, it, it appears uh, with the limited information that that we received last week that this office might, might do that uh, and provide that kind of forcing function, if you will.
0: Fill in the blank weapon system here will benefit from a lack of requirements, officials say, is something I've never heard before in the decades that I've been covering the Defense Department. Requirements, requirements, requirements. And yet that's the headline of uh, one of your most recent stories on DefenseScoop.com. JADC2 will benefit from lack of requirements, officials say. How do they explain that kind of contrarian thinking, uh, for lack of a better term, Mark?
2: Sure. Well, I think probably in the past... At least five years, maybe longer. I think we've seen a little bit of a transition where uh, the DoD is trying to get away from these uh, onerous and and um, descriptive or prescriptive rather requirements. They're they're trying not to prescribe to industry what they want. Instead, they're going towards more of a descriptive model. Here's X problem that we're trying to solve, industry go out and help us. You know, we, we've heard some examples in the past where um, there's very specific requirements, and and when uh, a system is delivered, it doesn't exactly meet what DoD wants because the contractor's built it specifically to that, and it, it doesn't necessarily take in you know left or right boundaries or, or things that might pop up that are unexpected. And so um, in this particular case, I think what officials are saying is uh, with the lack of requirements with JADC2 now, it's really allowing the services to go out and experiment and figure out what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve. And once they do a little bit more of this experimentation and kind of figure out, okay, here's the gaps here, here are the gaps here, here's what we need to get to, then they can maybe go to industry with a little bit more specificity and say, help us solve this Let's let's get this problem defined as opposed to here's X requirement to this spec and that spec, deliver it right now, and, and we're going to solve JADC2. They've said that that's just not, with the pace of technology um, today, that's just not how, how they're going to be able to win.
0: And in that context, you quote uh, Chris O'Donnell, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Platform and Weapon Portfolio Management uh, in the uh, Office of ANS um, in, in uh, OSD. If we think we're going to just put a dot out here and we're going to move toward it like I'm going to build the sixth gen fighter, I don't see that happening for C 2 It's going to take us 15 years and we're going to FCS it, um, referring the future combat system. And that those three letters still send shivers up the spines of weapons people in the Pentagon, uh, Mark.
2: Uh, totally. I mean, I, again, I think that they've they've realized that aside from very specialized things like um aircraft carriers ships maybe even tanks um this this long lead time acquisition cycle where you know you develop requirements it it, you go through this huge test cycle and then you deliver it 15 years later just isn't going to work i mean we're living in a software centric world now and um things change almost on a daily basis. And so we're seeing this much more iterative process across DOD where we're, um, you have software capabilities that are constantly updated because officials are, are very adamant that if it takes 10 years to, to build and deliver something, by the time it hits uh, the, the hands of, of warfighters, it's, it's going to be obsolete. You need to be able to adapt much faster than that.
0: Um, what do you have uh, coming in the week ahead? What will you be covering, Mark?
2: Uh, so next week, um, FC's Belvoir chapter is hosting its annual industry day. This is really um, focused on the Army's program executive office for enterprise information systems. This is going to be an opportunity for uh, members of industry to really hear uh, what opportunities PEO EIS has coming down the pike from uh, an enterprise IT perspective. I'm sure we'll hear a lot on zero trust and how, Um, EIS is working uh, the Army's uh, unified network uh, strategy.
0: John, what's coming for you, sir?
2: One thing I'm
1: uh, on the lookout for is the release of DOD's annual report on China's military power, and that could happen uh, as early as this week. Um, It's an annual assessment that the Pentagon uh, and DIA put together every year, uh, really cataloging uh, China's uh, various capabilities, And one thing I'm particularly looking out for is what might be different in this year's report. Uh, You know, many times uh, the language is very similar. It almost looks like they copied and pasted uh, certain segments. Um, So, you know, some of the standard uh, threats and concerns uh, I'm sure will be in there again. But I'm looking to see if there are any new aspects that maybe haven't been highlighted as much in previous year's reports just to see Uh, how trends might be changing or what some of the growing concerns are at DOD uh, about the PLA in particular.
0: Gentlemen, terrific reporting as always, as with your colleague Brandy Vincent, also on DefenseScoop.com. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about those stories and lots of other news at DefenseScoop.com. December will mark the six-month anniversary of full operational capability for the Office of the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office at the Pentagon. Katie Savage is Deputy CDAO for Digital Services. She's been at DOD a total of about three and a half years as Deputy Director and then Director of the Defense Digital Services before it moved to the CDAO office. At CyberTalks, she tells moderator John check of Raytheon the digital landscape of the department has changed in
3: three ways. One is of course the pandemic. Uh, we've shifted to a work from home workforce and that has brought both opportunity to have a larger workforce. Uh, you know, we're able to recruit people all over the US because there's no longer, you know, we, we've made it possible for people to work outside of uh, the NCR but it's also increased our risk. You know, we're um, not able to to control all of the networks, all of the endpoints. So, you know, certainly there's a cybersecurity risk that comes along with that opportunity. Uh, The second is what I'd call mission partner environments. So given the situation uh, in Ukraine, for example, um, and obviously uh, risks uh, that all of the combatant commands face, uh, increasingly we're looking to connect digitally with our partners and allies around the world. Um, and that also introduces opportunity and cybersecurity risk. Uh, and then the last piece, uh, which Colonel Frost had just uh, alluded to as well, uh, we've, we've both expanded the defense industrial base and the, the remit of the cybersecurity issues we're looking at. So for example, during the pandemic again, uh, Operation Warp Speed, the, secure, the race to secure a vaccine um, and deliver it to the American people, what meant that we had responsibility for working with the supply chain, vaccine companies, et cetera, to protect the data and ensure that uh, the vaccine that we delivered um, hadn't been tampered with. Uh, and th- the election is another great example of that as well. You know, we have a strong partnership between DOD and, and CISA, for example, to look at that so that the landscape has really changed in terms of what, na- what constitutes national security and where there is uh, potential risk with regard to our adversaries.
4: I think it's really one of the key aspects of what, one of the things you touched on is working as a uh, uh, you really that cyber SWAT team aspect of what you do, which is taking the pandemic into account, being able to, uh, to open the aperture and hire people from where they work, not yeah. with necessarily within the national capital region. How uh, have you had to operate differently?
3: So in a few different ways, we had made the decision at DDS to be remote and distributed uh, even before the pandemic. Uh, We are primarily a software development team and a team of cybersecurity experts. And all of that talent does not live in DC. So we had made that decision long before the pandemic, but it, it changed the the landscape in a few different ways. One, you know, we we did have to step up our game in, tr- in terms of cybersecurity. It was a good opportunity for us to refresh um, the the tools that we use, you know, VPNs, you know, VPNs, security keys, things like that that we needed to roll out to you know workforce that spans. Um, in some cases, the globe, so we had to really be thoughtful about how we were onboarding new people, especially you know, the, the majority of our team does come from industry. And so they might not be as familiar with you know, the different levels of, of classification, CUI, et cetera. So it was both an education and a, and a tooling perspective. Um, but like the rest of the DoD, it also helped us to, I think, get better at how we deliver just equipment generally. Uh, as I like to say, you know, we, we pride ourselves at, at DDS, at, being, at people being able to computer on day one, meaning they, you know, the first day, they have a laptop, they can sign on to you know, the, the collaborative tools and platforms that we use. And I think that's something that is not always true at DoD and something that you know, the pandemic has put a lot of pressure on us to improve, and, and thankfully we have.
4: I think that's exactly right. That, people say that's the first 90 days on a job somebody really forms a opinion. It's that first 24 hours. Can right. they be productive immediately? Right. Right. Um, there's a lot of talk about, uh, in both government and private sector circles, about the great reshuffling. We've already moved on from the great resignation to the next buzzword. Um, we've all been impacted by a massive movement of people, right? People are deciding they want to work differently, try different things. Uh, what are your thoughts on workplace culture and the shifting uh, workforce's desires and expectations, and how has it impacted you?
3: It's so interesting. I really thought that there would be an adverse effect on government hiring because of you know the because of the economy, because of the work from home. And I've actually seen the opposite. And um, we serve cyber accepted service, so people are on either two or five year terms. and it's it's interesting. People have actually asked if they can stay longer. Um, and back to you know what, what Goldie was saying, people are really interested in, in increasingly what I hear in interviews is people want, to be mission focused, and um, they don't want to, you know, build a like a dog walking app or something like that. Like they they really want to, you know, they say to me things like, I, "I want a job that my children will look at me and be proud of." Uh, and they're also interested in the stability that government can provide. Um, many of them were laid off at those industry jobs you know, as you know, the, the, um, the workforce and the environment shifted during the pandemic. So I think in government, we have an incredible opportunity right now to take advantage of you know, the, the flexibility and uh, the stability that uh, that government can provide. And we have a mission that, uh, that an industry can't always compete with.
4: So, talking about the, the, the mission aspect and really getting people excited to join government for the mission, what's the one thing you wish people knew about DDS, when, your accomplishments, some of the things you've done?
3: Yeah, we were, we were talking about this before. I was, there's, there's a lot of things I wish I could, could identify. Um, I, I think what I, I wish... You know, and what I try to, to share is that we have such a broad range of, of products. I mean, we, we are the SWAT team, uh, you know, reporting into, um, into the secretary's office. And so that, that can mean everything from, you know, just in, in my three years, some of the crises we've taken on have included uh, the increase of counter-UAS, around, uh, the increase of, of UAS, the so small drones around the world, and providing counter to that. Um, Operation Warp Speed, as I said, you know, we, we worked closely with, with CISA and broader DHS and HHS on how we can uh, deliver a safe vaccine. Uh, We're still engaged um, with helping uh, our Afghan allies and partners uh, safely immigrate to the U.S., and and that's something that I think will continue for for years. And there's over 100,000 people that uh, are seeking asylum status um, coming out of our conflict in Afghanistan, and and that's something that our team is working from a digital perspective to expedite. So we really run the, the gamut um, of, of activities and, and, you know, there are tons of opportunities like this uh, throughout DOD and other federal agencies to make both humanitarian and cyber impacts.
4: So talking about those cyber impacts, what's one of the, the things you're working on out in the future, a little down the road, that really excites you?
3: Yeah, so the, the oldest program at DDS is our Hack the Pentagon program. It was one of the, the very first projects um, that we got off the ground uh, when DDS was was incorporated in the secretary's office. Uh, and what that is, it's running bug bounties. Uh, we were the first to sponsor a, uh, a bug bounty with outside ethical hackers, so non-government people, allowing them to look at government assets and websites, find vulnerabilities, report them safely uh, without you know, fear of um, uh, you know, retribution, and you know, to make them you know, improve, the, improve the, the security of these assets. So we've done you know, dozens and dozens of these, you know, with uh, with all of the services at this point. Um, so we're now in a stage where we're trying to uh, teach a man to fish. So we're looking to kind of take, you know, seven eight years of best practices um, and make sort of a self serve portal um, for our customers who have been uh, taking advantage of that over the years. And so I'm excited for the opportunity to take the learning from our team and institutionalize it so that others can take advantage of it.
4: Well, thanks, Katie. I think let's, uh, let's end this on how we began our days. So, yeah. uh, what, what was your first cyber-related event today? Mine started off with, with five simple words, which was, we're out of milk. So, it made, it made me think, do I need to have a Wi-Fi connected fridge? And then, what are the yeah. cybersecurity issues of me doing that? What's the benefit? Do I really need to have that type of uh, situation in my house? That's kind of my first yeah. cyber event of the day. What was yours?
3: Yeah, it's, it's funny. So, I'm uh, about halfway through my, my first pregnancy with my first child, and so I'm... Um, we have a doctor's appointment tomorrow, and um, you know, I'm filling out all these online medical forms over and over, and um, you know, I'm at DOD, and my husband is at DHS, and so between us, the, the paranoia level um, is, is very high, <laughs> <laughs> so it's been really challenging, because we have all these different doctor's appointments, and we're like, oh, it's really don't want to give them my information, but you have to, so. uh, but all the more reason that we should be you know, working to, to secure these systems.
0: Katie Savage, the Deputy Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer for Digital Services at the Pentagon at CyberTalks with moderator John Check. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.